I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Murder in Oregon is a production of iHeart Radio. For 30 years now, The murder of Michael Frankie has cast a dark shadow over the state of Oregon and its institutions. He was a good and decent man, a former prosecutor and judge, hired just the year before to serve as director of the state's corrections department. And he was stabbed to death on the night of January 17, 1989, outside the office building where he worked in Salem, known as the Dome Building. Much of what happened that night remains a mystery. Frank Gable, a 29-year-old petty thief and small-time drug dealer, was arrested for the murder about a year later. Journalist and author Phil Stanford has been investigating the Frankie murder for three decades. It was not an accident. It was not a car burglary gone bad. He was a public official who discovered corruption in his own department. Heads were going to roll. He was about ready to demote or fire some of his, his top aides He'd already gotten rid of one, a lawyer who'd been working there for over a decade. The night before he was to address the legislative committee on this very subject, he was stabbed in the heart in front of the building where he worked. It was a cover-up from the beginning. They couldn't afford to even look at the people who might have done it, so they, they selected a patsy. And they made up the evidence against him, put him on trial, and got a conviction. (laughs) Those sons of bitches. For more than 30 years, Gable has adamantly maintained his innocence. And to this day, much about the Frankie murder investigation and Gable's subsequent arrest still remain shrouded in secrecy. But a few things do seem clear. The investigation into Michael's death was little more than a cover-up. The corruption Michael Frankie uncovered and the individuals tied to that corruption, and possibly Mike's murder, has not been properly pursued. Which is why for the past 10 episodes of Murder in Oregon, we've been asking the question, who killed Michael Frankie? I'm Lauren Bright Pacheco, and this 
is Murder in Oregon. The morning of January 18th, uh, 1989, Kevin was working at his construction company in Florida when he got the call. And he was already suspicious before that. Oh, yeah. A couple weeks before, he'd had a phone conversation with Mike, and Mike had told him that he'd discovered an organized criminal element in his department, and he was going to be cleaning house. And initially, he's told by Dick Peterson that Mike was shot when, in fact, he was stabbed. Yeah. Dick Peterson, deputy director of Oregon Corrections, tells Kevin that his brother Mike has been shot. Here's Michael Frankie's younger brother, Kevin. What's going through my mind, I think, is probably what goes through everybody's mind when you get a, a tragic event, is that I knew in my heart that I would get out here and somebody would tell me it's a big mistake, it was somebody else, Mike's okay, he's over here, the person up on the patio was somebody else. The gist of my thinking and feeling was just overwhelming grief and sadness. Kevin immediately flew to Oregon, as did his older brother, Pat. I remember seeing Pat. Uh, It looked like he just had the weight of the world on his shoulders. And all we could do is just hug each other. And all I said was, it's true. That was it. And then when... Kevin gets out to Oregon. He is interviewed initially by Detective Lauren Glover. Right, yeah. I think it's that morning at the Dome Building. Lauren Glover was a state police officer who was one of the principal investigators in the Frankie murder. I assume that Glover asked the expected questions that you would ask in a murder situation. Right. Did Mike have any drug habits? Did Mike have any drinking habits? Did he have any gambling habits? Uh, do you know if he w- was having affairs with anybody? Did he tell you this? Did he tell you that? And I said, no. What he told me was that he had uncovered an organized criminal element, and it kind of went over his head. And we know this because years later, we got the officer's notes, is that his brother was running into problems with his top staff. And then the Frankie brothers went with the police to Mike's house to get clothing for the funeral for Mike's body. And what they saw there was pretty amazing. Here's Pat, the oldest Frankie brother. We went out to his house, his wife and I, and her her dad, my brother Kevin with the police, to pick up clothing for the funeral people. There was a 45 caliber pistol in the bed that had been under his pillow, and a 12-gauge state riot gun leaning against the sliding glass door that opened out onto a deck. And uh, the deck and the sidewalk down below were littered with hundreds and hundreds of spent 12-gauge shotgun shells. He'd been out there doing the walk, practicing with that 12-gauge. That isn't a normal activity, I don't think. I don't think that's how I would want to spend my life, sleeping with a pistol under my pillow. Not only would it seem that Mike was concerned for his safety, but the state's official narrative of the murder as a car robbery gone bad just didn't make sense. 
Well, it wasn't much of a robbery because he still had his wallet, he still had his watch. What was missing was his, his briefcase. And in that briefcase would have been floppy disks. That's what we have to assume, yes. There was also unusual activity at the Dome building the day after his body was found, which would have been a Saturday. An inmate reported seeing a number, I think it was 23 or something like that, burn bags of computer printouts that had been gathered up over the weekend. There were 23 trash bags full of papers that were carried out of somewhere, and I would suspect some of it came out of his office, and they were all shredded. The Frankie family was assured the investigation was a top priority and cautioned not to talk to the press. But Kevin, in particular, remained skeptical. From day one, I didn't believe that somebody was there stealing something out of Mike's glove compartment and killed him. The whole scenario, everything just seemed absolutely wrong because of what I knew about my brother. The fact that he would grab somebody, who does, who in their right mind thinks that Mike gives a shit about anything they're gonna steal out of a state car? Seriously. After the funeral, Kevin went back to Florida and back to his business there, spending most of his time trying to conduct a long-distance investigation, which was very difficult because he really didn't have any contacts back in Salem. He was just calling blind in the corrections department uh, phone book. And then a witness came forward. Shortly after Kevin got back to Florida, state police held a press conference and said they had a witness. It was a maintenance person who, uh, it turned out, was a janitor named Wayne Hunsaker. He said he saw two people. He turned because he heard something like a grunt sound or a hurt sound, like somebody getting punched in the gut. And he turned around and he saw two guys facing each other. At that instant, one turned and ran this way, and the other one went back into the dome building. The two men he described, one was taller than the other, and then one turned around and ran from the dome building across the big green field there towards the state hospital. So the other one turned around and walked back to the dome building. He said leisurely at the time. But what strikes me here is very odd is that the one who turned and ran was noticeably taller than the one who turned and walked back to the dome building. Michael Frankie was about 6'3 or 6'4, which means that the guy who turned and ran, he was as tall as an NBA basketball player. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't fit. About a week after the murder, the police held a press conference and announced they were interested in talking with a man who had been seen in the dome building the night of the murder. He was seen in the dome building at 6.30, which was about an hour after the building had been locked to the public. He was wearing a dark suit, and, and the woman thought it was a, a pinstripe suit. He quickly uh, became known as the man in the pinstripe suit. Now, the thought that there was a guy inside the building and a guy outside the building is also interesting in light of the fact that we know that the number three in command under Mike's department, Dave Colley, said that he was afraid to go check Mike's office because he was afraid he'd find him dead from a suicide. 
correct? That's what Collie said. Who's the guy in the pinstripe suit? And is stabbing him the best thing? I think it was planned that he was, there was supposed to be a suicide. Pinstripe suit was supposed to disarm him, get him in his office, and either take him somewhere and kill him at home or have him do the suicide here. Make it look like a suicide. And make it look like a suicide. I don't know if they knew that he always used the North Portico door instead of the main entry door because the pinstripe suit was seen at the main entry door going back and forth and not here. So if he came out here and the objective was to kill him and now he's getting loose and you have to stop him, then the shit hits the fan. After months with no information, Kevin's back in Florida and feeling desperate when he gets an unusual tip. Yeah, a friend hands him a newspaper article about a psychic who'd helped the local police and said, might as well try her. So Kevin gave her a call and they got together. She said that they've got somebody in custody right now. They think that he might have done it, but he didn't do it, but he knows more than he should know. His name's John K. something. I called Glover, and I asked him, I said, do you have somebody in custody right now? He said, yeah, who, who snitched yet? We got a leak in there, so who told you about that? And I said, I went to a psychic, and she said that you had somebody in custody right now named John K. He says it's C. Krause. One of the most obvious things that Johnny Krause knew that he couldn't have known unless he'd been there was the nature of Frankie's wounds. One, a stab mark to the left arm, probably a defensive wound, and the fatal wound to the heart. And Johnny Krause knew that. It hadn't been released to the public. But in addition to that, he described the scene. He said Frankie had come up on him when he was breaking into the car. He tried to get away. He couldn't. Frankie was too strong. They struggled. He had a knife. Still trying to get away, he started slashing at him. And then he stabbed him. The wind went out of him. And he turned and ran towards the old hospital across the huge green lawn there. And around the green generator, which is exactly what Hunsaker, the janitor, the state cops, first witness, said he saw that night. Kevin and Mike's brother, Pat Frankie, would visit Johnny Krause in prison looking for answers. And I went to the penitentiary with Krause's lawyer, and I had a series of questions written out on the three-by-five cards that I showed Krause through the glass. I didn't want to talk. I didn't want it recorded what I was asking and what he was responding to. And I asked him about eight or ten questions, and he indicated that he didn't do it, but he knew who did do it, and that he'd be willing to cooperate along those lines. Pat called Phil with a bombshell Krause shared. He said, Pat, this goes to corrections. You're on to something. Pat told me I put that in the column. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. 
Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. After Johnny Krause's confession, he even took cops on a ride to show them where they could find the bloody clothes he ditched after the murder. During that ride, Krause also suggested a bit of a detour. The police took him in a police car to show them where he had buried some clothes that he had worn that night. And as they were driving down Park Avenue, two blocks from the Dome Building, which is where Michael Frankie worked. Krause said, if you want to go see where the knife was that killed Mike Frankie, go over to 942 Park Avenue. And that's what Dale penned in the car and two state cops and Krause's attorney, and they couldn't take two minutes out of their drive to the penitentiary to stop by 942 Park Avenue just to check him out. And, and that afternoon, the record shows he came back and had a meeting with Dale Penn and Sarah Moore, 
who was then the lead prosecutor on the case, and said that he'd been approached by two officials in corrections, offered $10,000 to kill Frankie, but had backed out of it, and that someone else had done it. So all this is going on behind the scenes, and we don't know it until the records are released sometime later. But what we do know is that shortly after that, Johnny Krause was dropped as a suspect. And in fact, eventually given immunity by the DA's office on the condition that he not recant his recantation. So it's that they didn't like his confession. They didn't like the people his confession would ultimately lead to. That's what it looks like, for sure. By now, Kevin was done taking orders from the folks behind the official investigation and gives Phil the green light to report on the corruption he knew his brother was investigating. Phil does, and includes a copy of a police sketch he's tracked down. It's of the man in the pinstripe suit. And then... Governor Neil Goldschmidt retaliates against both Phil and Kevin. That's what set off Goldschmidt. Next thing I knew, he was holding a press conference. He's saying, issue after issue is in the paper, and nobody has ever stopped to say, where does this garbage come from? You're impugning the character of the Oregon State Police, which is an independent investigation. He held another press conference and called it BS. After that, Goldschmidt's office and the prosecutor, Dale Penn, start attacking Kevin, saying there is no evidence at all that members of the Frankie family said anything about this organized criminal element in their initial interviews with the state cops, which, of course, was not true. Even as the official investigation pushed the narrative of a car burglary gone bad, there was another development that pointed in a very different direction. An inmate named Conrad Garcia came forward with shocking allegations. About six months after Michael Frankie is murdered, he goes to his counselor in prison and tells the counselor that he knows something about the murder. He says he was approached by Tim Natividad to do the murder, and he knows that Scott McAllister, the prison lawyer, arranged it. Is there record of that? I pulled up the report by Lawrence Conrad's counselor, and it says, this is what the task force wrote from his report. Lawrence was interviewing inmate Garcia concerning an institutional matter. During the conversation, Garcia told Lawrence, Mr. Frankie was killed by Timothy David Natividad. This was arranged by Scott McAllister. So that's the information they had. Conrad stated that Tim Natividad killed Mike Frankie and that Scott McAllister had put him up to it. And he told that to his counselor. And John Lawrence gave that information into the state police via the tip lines and the tip sheets to the state police investigators regarding Mike's murder. And we spoke to two women extremely involved and familiar with Timothy Natividad, also known as Rooster, and both believed he was violent, volatile, and very capable of murder. Here's Carrie Rothschild, who was barely a teen when she was trafficked by her mother to Natividad, a drug dealer. Carrie was even with Natividad when another murder was committed. There were some gunshots, and... The door opened, and 
Somebody in the other room had shot one of the people that he was with and killed him. And he had them over his shoulder. And I've got, I mean, I've had nightmares about this day forever, but um, he's carrying them, you know? And then he takes them out side and puts them in a trunk of a car. And I went with him in the van and I helped him, unfortunately, clean up the blood because it was on him. And he looked at me and said, we'll never ever speak of this again. And I was so scared. Carrie's mother, Melody, was muling large amounts of drugs into the prison with the obvious protection and knowledge of people in power. She's moving a lot of drugs into the joint. She's going in to visit three times a day, seven days a week, which is unheard of. You've got to have some sort of connection there to get in that many visits. You're not allowed that many that often unless your name doesn't go on the visitation records. So you must have known somebody that could get you in without documenting your visit. Carrie recalls corrections guards and officials coming to her house to visit her mother, Melody, who was desperate to get her fourth husband, Conrad Garcia, out of prison. When Natividad would come to our house, usually he would come alone. And he came to our house on a couple of different occasions with different people. One time he came with who I believe is Scott McAllister, and then the other time he came with someone who I believe is the guard from the prison. They pulled up in government vehicles, and I only know that now from working in the field of federal law. Liz Godlove was Natividad's live-in girlfriend, gave birth to his son, and was often on the receiving end of his violent mood swings. Tim got extremely dangerous, holding knives to my throat and choking me out. And like, the police weren't really, there's nothing they could do. I filed restraining orders. Tim would get locked up for the day and get out. It would be worse. And she says Natividad became increasingly unhinged after Michael Frankie's murder. He was really super paranoid, angry, sad, mad. All the emotions were like a lot of crying and shaking and not letting me out of his sight, not letting me go to the store, not letting me have family over, keeping the blinds shut and saying, don't let anybody in, do not answer the door. And if I'm here, I'm not here, you know, don't ever let anybody know I'm here. He wanted to move to Bend and buy a house. In those two weeks, he's telling me all this. He wanted to go to Hawaii. So he had all these big plans right away. Two weeks after Mike's murder, Liz would shoot Tim to death in self-defense. Then, months later, she would see the police drawing of the man in the pinstripe suit. The composite drawing that came out in the newspaper and on the news looked to me and my, my sister Karen, it looked like Tim. Do you remember what you thought and what you said when you saw that? Really, we were shocked and said, oh my God. So she went to the police. I said, you guys, I think Tim killed Michael Frankie. I need you to look into it. Tim always carried a knife. Tim had a huge knife collection. 
Tim was violent. Tim told me he killed somebody, and I think it's Michael. Look at this composite drawing. And they laughed and said, you can't convict a dead man. There's nothing we can do here. And Tim Natividad is never pursued as a suspect. No, despite what Conrad Garcia told his counselor, that he'd been approached by Natividad to do the murder and that he thought that Scott McAllister was behind it, they never really pursued that. No, they never did. Why do you think? One obvious possibility is they couldn't have investigated him without investigating McAllister, and they obviously did not want to investigate McAllister. And so it was about this time the investigation started zeroing in on small-time drug dealer named Frank Gable, just completely out of the blue. They had no physical evidence connecting him with the crime, none. And how did they build their case around him? So what they did was to talk to a motley collection of ex-cons and jailbirds who had serious sentences in some cases hanging over their heads and get them to make up stories about Gable. They used lie detector tests, polygraphs, to shape the testimony in just about every case. I got the uh, phone call at home on April 9th, the morning of April 9th, and it was Captain Dennis O'Donnell on the line. He stated his purpose for the call was to inform me that they had indicted Frank Gable for the murder of Mike. And I said, you got to be shitting me. I said, well, why are you calling me? Because I was expecting that if there was a call, that it'd be calling from the DA's office. And he said, we flipped a coin and I lost. <laughs> Convinced there was more to his brother's murder, Kevin picked up and moved to Oregon. He wasn't exactly welcomed. The very first night that I was in Oregon, I got my tires slashed. Then I got a, a note saying, uh, welcome to Oregon, now go home, placed on the, the windshield. The Salem and state police would try to make his life a living hell, and they'd go beyond verbal harassment. It's not verbal when there's a gun pointing in your temple, and that happened several, on several occasions. One in particular that nearly turned deadly. I sat there wondering if I was going to see the windshield blow out before my brain said it. Uh, all kinds of weird things were coming into my head. And I kept watching the cops in my rearview mirror because they had the, the light shining in the outside mirror here. And I could see about five cops back there. In the meantime, Gable's trial set. Yeah, the lawyer assigned to Gable's case. Bob Abel was hardly capable of handling such a big, important, complex case. He was on the skids himself as a lawyer, and he was a heavy drinker besides. In fact, his own defense team was so concerned that he wasn't prepared for Gable's trial that they approached the judge at the time with a formal letter asking to postpone the trial. Uh, they sent Judge uh, West a letter saying just that, and Nothing came of it. The trial went forward. Here's local television reporter Eric Mason. I think all of us realized there was nothing really that connected Frank Gable to this crime. And that the people who had told the story that and had become informants and snitches against Frank Gable, they were all professional liars. 
They were all people who'd made serious, big deals before in their lives with prosecutors and understood the system and the way it worked. Jody and Shorty Harden were supposedly the state's star witnesses, their only eyewitnesses. After they got their stories straight, they claimed to have been in a car at the dome building on the night of the murder and to have seen the murder. But their testimony contradicted the only reliable witness the state had on the stand, Hunsaker. Right. Hunsaker, who saw the two men in front of the dome building, would have also seen the car that Jody and Shorty were in, but there was no car there. And in the trial, this, this is a pretty good example of how incompetent Abel was. He didn't even try to point this contradiction out. And the jury was never told about Johnny Krause's confession, and Tim Natividad's name was never even mentioned. No, the jury had no idea that someone else had confessed to the crime. Tom McCallum was the lead investigator for Frank Gable's defense. When the verdict came back, Frank didn't want to come up. He didn't want to come, he was scared and didn't want to come up and uh, hear the verdict. And I went down and talked to him for about half an hour and I said, God, Frank, there's no way they can find you guilty. And that's the way I felt. And so with absolutely no physical evidence connecting him to the scene of the crime and only the perjured testimony of several so-called material witnesses, Frank Gable was convicted of the murder of Michael Frankie and sentenced to life without parole. They even asked for the death penalty. Which is, to me, the final evil here is that they, knowing that they had made up the case against this man, would then, after he was convicted, try to kill him. And so begins Frank Gable's long legal battle to prove his innocence. This case has been controversial from the start. When Gable was arrested for the murder, he claimed he was set up. I believe that I walked into a complicated drug ring and really don't know how complicated it was until now. And you think maybe that drug ring had something to do with Frankie's murder? I believe so, yes. He has filed multiple appeals. Today, the judge ruled the trial court... Frank Gable filed a handwritten habeas corpus petition in 2007. That Latin term literally translates to produce the body. It's a legal recourse where a person can report supposed unlawful imprisonment and ask for the chance to have a judge determine whether or not the detention was legal. It was truly Frank's last chance and would prove the beginning to an uphill battle for his freedom. After reading Phil Stanford's columns, Gable began to correspond with Phil. The letters were heartfelt and personal. In them, Gable's mood wavered at times between hope and despair. September 7th, 2011. Phil, glad to hear from you. All is okay on this end. Best prison can be, I guess. Been a little crazy here. Guy got stabbed about 50 times. Heard he's on life support. Prison is so full of violence. No words can express how I hate it in here, Phil. It's been such a long road. Not much else, really. Just trying the best I can to continue to deal with this nightmare. So overwhelming at times. I just pray that God sees fit to bring justice in the near future. Amen. So tire Phil. Take care. While he was in prison, Gable was moved around repeatedly. 
he got transferred to uh, Kansas to be near his sister, who was ill. And um, so that, that explains the last one. But the, the transfers before that, I, I think some of them were just punitive. I mean, Kevin, Kevin believes he was transferred to the particular prison in California just because it was so dangerous, and they, they would have been more than happy to have him get killed. Things hit a turning point when Gable's plight caught the attention of a federal public defender, Nell Brown. They continue to get things done. I just wish it would be faster. Guess they don't understand that it's been 22 and a half years I've been locked up and that any chance to have a family is slipping away. I always pictured myself with a wife, several kids on a ranch, enjoying fishing and hunting with my kids, riding horses, etc., I've got nothing at 52 years old, in prison wrongfully convicted. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.
on October 17, 2014, Brown filed an amended version of Gable's original petition for writ of habeas corpus, this time with a proclamation of innocence, along with a 189-page supporting legal brief. It was an astronomical task. First of all, she and her, her investigators contacted all the material witnesses and got them to recant, uh, to admit they'd made up their testimony. She was using phone records. She put together an airtight alibi for Frank on the night of the murder at the time of the murder. This could have been done before. It was a, really a brilliant piece of, of investigation and, and argumentation. The one thing that impressed me so much was in one of the appendices of her report was a picture they had found in the state police evidence lockers of Michael Frankie's whiteboard, the whiteboard he was using with his staff. Uh, the night of the murder, they were having a meeting talking about the talk he was going to be giving the next morning to the legislative committee. And on the whiteboard, the last entry was the A-shed, the 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 fire in the A-shed was obviously going to be the last item on his, his speech. It was the most important thing he was going to leave the legislators with. And the A-shed fire was arson for insurance purposes, which cost the state of Oregon well over a million dollars. Yes, and it was final proof that, yes, he was in investigating corruption. This is what the state had been fighting against so long, the idea that he could possibly have been investigating corruption. Here was the proof of it, finally. Photographic proof of it. Here's Nigel Jaquess, Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for the Willamette Week. I think the Federal Public Defender's Office did an amazing job of tracking down uh, a disparate group of people and getting them to tell something probably closer to the truth than they told in 1990 and 1991. And, you know, that it, it's, it's, it's very... Uh, heartening to see that Nell Brown in particular, but Nell and her colleagues were willing to put that kind of time and those kind of resources into a guy that nobody cared about. I mean, you know, those few reporters who were kind of obsessed with this case and then a small coterie of people cared about Frank Abel, but nobody really cared about Frank Abel. And and, uh, for them to invest all that time and, and all that shoe leather into getting those people to recant, it's a pretty amazing piece of of work. Brown also brought up the confession of Krauss being omitted from evidence, as well as Natividad. By forbidding the defense from presenting the jury with evidence of third-party guilt, along with other glaring violations of Gable's constitutional rights, Brown made the case that not only did Frank Gable not commit the murder, but he was completely innocent of the crime. For Phil Stanford, the petition was an impressive presentation of the argument Frank Gable had been arguing all along. I realized reading these letters from Gable, he understood it. He'd been reading the case for years, and he understood that, as he says in the letters here, they knowingly set me up. They knowingly made up the evidence against me. They knowingly obscured and confused the evidence on my alibi. He understood it, and he was sitting there locked up in one of the worst prisons in the country, life without parole, you know, really without much hope at that point, sending me letters saying, we need to investigate this, we need to investigate that. It wasn't until the federal public defender, Nell Brown, presented her brilliant study of the case, the habeas corpus petition, to the court, 
And I had a chance to read that that I, I, I must say, uh, for the first time, I really understood the case. I mean, it's an absolutely brilliant job. And the analysis is good. The evidence is also brilliantly presented. He is quite innocent. And, and here is the proof. Steve Jackson covered Gable's initial trial for the Statesman Journal. Here's his take on public defender Nell Brown's petition. You know, Nell, I, I talked to her at one point, and she's admirable in that, you know, she went to bat for Frank and, and did her job. And that's the sort of, you know, attorney you want to have on your side. You know, we should all get to have that sort of a, an attorney on our side. On April 18th, 2019, U.S. Magistrate Judge John Acosta delivered his ruling. But just today, a federal judge ruled he must be released from custody unless the state of Oregon decides to retry him within 90 days. He has filed multiple appeals. Today, the judge ruled the trial court messed up by not allowing evidence that showed another person had actually admitted to the crime. What, what struck me most, of course, was the judge's statement that given the evidence it was available then, and, and uh, new evidence that had been brought forward, no reasonable juror would vote to convict Frank Gable. Here's reporter for the Portland Tribune, Jim Redden's thoughts. Why they didn't prosecute Johnny Krause when he made the confession, even though he recanted it, you know, the one confession he made had sufficient detail to convince Acosta that, you know, it should have been entered into evidence. Why they decided not to prosecute him and then settled on Gable, I have no idea. And I, I don't know that we'll ever know that. For Kevin Frankie and Phil Stamford, after nearly 30 years, news of the ruling in Frank's favor was beyond emotional. Here's a voicemail Kevin left me that night. Hi, Lauren, this is Kevin. Um, Oh, man. Home fucking run. I haven't cried so hard since Mike got killed. And that's the truth. That is, I don't know what to say. Here's Phil. I got an email from Jim Redden. He, he was the one who'd done the best job of keeping up with Nell. And, and she had sent him an email saying, Gable wins. I mean, that's her way of doing it. She didn't say we won. And I, I, it still didn't really hit me. And at some point, I forget just what it was, I, it, it hit me, and uh, I could feel my, uh, you know, sort of tears squeezing out of my eyes. I was, um, <laughs> and, 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 of course, I, I, I talked to Kevin, <laughs> and, uh, and he said, yeah, I cried like a baby, and I, I said, uh, me too. After Judge Acosta's decision, Kevin received a letter from Frank. It says, I can't express all the emotions I feel. Go, me too. The ruling is awesome, but as I told my rain, it's Rainy, his wife, been stabbed, my throat's been cut, shot. I'm afraid I can't hold a job in the free world. I'm a broken man, but I'm willing to fight and overcome it. I'm still in prison, still scared to believe it could finally be over. I may walk out free. 
state that wrong, wrongfully convicted me, I now want to see if they'll appeal and I'll be stuck in here for who knows how long. So tell them getting dressed up, out to leave, I'll be uncertain, not able to believe this is truly over. Hope to see you all soon, Frank. Freedom after 30 years. On Friday, 59-year-old Frank Gable will walk out of prison. Now, Oregon's Department of Justice has 90 days to either release Gable or retry him. Frank Gable did walk out of prison into the arms of his wife on June 28, 2019. But the joy of Frank's newfound freedom was short-lived. The state of Oregon appealed the decision the next month. The Oregon Department of Justice is appealing, saying it believes Gable remains a danger to the public. Kevin Frankie thinks the state is running out of options and excuses. The state's not going to win their appeal. Marion County is not going to retry him. But they can drag this appeal out for years. And they don't have a case against him, period. They have no witnesses. They have no evidence. They have nothing. And now we have an open case. Coming up on the final episode of Murder in Oregon. Loose ends are tied. A lot of people were never satisfied that it was solved, and they're even less satisfied today. And we present the pressing issues that remain. There's a letter there that said, I knew your brother was killed because he knew too much and he was stepping on the wrong toes. To call out the people who know who killed Michael Frankie. Murder in Oregon is hosted by Lauren Bright Pacheco and Phil Stanford. Executive producers are Noel Brown, Lauren Bright Pacheco, and Phil Stanford. Supervising producer and lead editor is Taylor Shacoin. Sound design by Tristan McNeil. Story editing by Matt Riddle. Written by Phil Stanford, Matt Riddle, and Lauren Bright Pacheco. Music written and performed by the Diamond Street Players and mixed by Taylor Shacoin. With music supervision by Noel Brown. Additional music by Tristan McNeil. Archival elements courtesy of KGW in Portland, Oregon, the station behind the podcast Urge to Kill. Murder in Oregon is a production of iHeartRadio. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. 
This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how three 20-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.